Well, they came out with that song, We Need the Church. Our family loved it. Our family's dream is to one day sing like the Reigns family. And so we took that song. We, we, I mean, y'all can still sing it too, but we, uh, we, we stole it. I love that song. And I'd rather have Jesus. I love that song too. I um, probably can tell this. I went to college and uh, I, I was a music minor. And the reason why I was a music minor is because I was a youth ministry major. And the reason why I was a youth ministry major is because that was the only ministry major that required only one year of Greek. You didn't have to do two years of Greek and Hebrew, so I felt called to the youth ministry. I don't like kids, but that was the reason why I did that. And, uh, but back in that day, if you were a youth ministry major, then you had to minor in either music or phys ed. Well, I didn't feel called to teach school and be a school teacher and a coach, and so I, the other choice was music. I didn't know where middle C was on a piano. And so the summer before, I took piano lessons to kind of, you know, kind of get ready. And I uh, had a lady in the, in the town that gave me piano lessons. I took piano lessons for two weeks and I couldn't play. And so I just quit because she wasn't helping me any. And so, <laughs> but anyway, I went through that. And when, when you graduate, you have to have a senior recital. you got to. They have, um, if the daughter's here, um, the, the Communicative Arts Center, and, and you go in there, and, and there's all these music majors and the music faculty and what have you. And then you go in there, and you got to go in there, and you got to sing for like 25 minutes. And so you go in there, and you sing two or three songs, you know, Poor Wayfaring Stranger and all that kind of stuff. Then you got to sing a little Italian song. Then when you get done, you go out, you go out, and then you come back in to their applause. And then you sing one more song, and then if you pass, then you pass, hallelujah. And that last song, you get to select. You just, it's just it's freestyle. And so my last song that I selected was that song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. So I come out, I come out, and, and they're all there. And, and uh, I got to singing the song, and I made a mistake. I started thinking about the song. And that was a big mistake. And I started to, it's hard to sing while you're crying. And I started crying. And I blustered my way through that thing. I enjoyed it. They didn't. I, I had a great time. The lady that was the head of the whole music department, she brought me in and she said, here's what we're going to do. She said, we're going to pass you. But don't you tell anybody that you ever took music from this school. But I love that song. What a great song. What a great song. Well, the thing about coming to meetings like this is that if you go to another meeting where there's the same people, you can't write a new sermon everywhere you go. It's just the way it is. I was talking about Chris Simpson. This is really the place where sermons go to die because once you've preached it here, everybody's heard it. So you just got to kind of be done with it. So I've preached this a couple of times. Brother Earl Hughes said, God gave me the sermon and as long as he's using it, I'm going to preach it. And if he quits using it, then I'll just set it down. And so I'm going to preach it again. I told the Harris Brothers a couple of weeks ago, you guys sing the same songs everywhere you go, so I could preach the same sermon everywhere I go. And uh, if you've got to have a new sermon, then I think the singers should have to sing new songs. But First Peter chapter 1, First Peter chapter 1, I, I'm still with this book. First Peter chapter number 1. Verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. 
By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. If my count is correct, this is sermon number 14 for the week, and we are just halfway through. We have heard loud, and we've heard quiet. We've heard fast, we've heard slow. We've heard convicting, we've heard inspiring. But every preacher so far that has stood in this pulpit has taken his text from the same book, the Bible. I love Bible preaching. And you must be too because you're still here. You walked in here with a Bible. The highlight of the meeting is when some preacher, we don't care who, stands up and says, open your Bible too. Because we are people of the book. We don't have a catechism. We don't have a confession. We don't have a creed. We don't study the writings of Mary Baker Eddy or Joseph Smith. We just have a Bible. And I love my Bible. I remember the first Bible that I was ever owned that I remember. And Brother Gravely, we come from different sides, different sides, but we ended up at the same place. Now, remember the first Bible that I remember owning. I was probably four or five years old, and it was one of those little paperback Bibles that you buy from the Dollar General Store, black Bible with the red around it. And just as a little kid going to Sunday school, I can remember carrying that Bible to Sunday school when I was in kindergarten. We had a Sunday school teacher in the church that my dad pastored, and they were from Spain. And so she would teach us songs in Spain. Jesus loves me in Spain and Spanish. And, and, and I remember I remember that Bible. Why I came up in Christian school and, and most of the Christian school that I came up in were the ACE schools. If you were, I, I don't know if they still have that or not, but I had the ACE schools and, and, and they had the uniforms. We had to wear the blue pants, white shirts on Monday and red shirts on Tuesday or whatever it was. And you had to wear that, that big wide tie. And ACE back then had Bibles and they had hardback Bibles. It was like big as a family Bible and it was blue and it had ACE on it and, and, and it was it, and it just really stood out. And I remember buying one of the mom buying me one of those Bibles and I was so proud of that Bible. And I'd go around and I'd have preachers sign that Bible. I remember the night that I got up the nerve to ask Dr. Harold Seitler to sign my Bible and he signed my, my, my hardback blue ACE Bible and I was so proud of that. I've got a Bible in my office right now. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take a million dollars for it. It's my dad's first Bible. It's an old Schofield Bible that he had when he first started preaching. My dad was a free will Baptist when he got called to preach. Preached his first message out of Isaiah 118, trying to prove that you could lose your salvation. And, and, and I've got that Bible. And it's got notes all in it and it's torn and tattered. I, I wouldn't give you any, I, I wouldn't take anything for that Bible. And in my lifetime, I have owned dozens and dozens of copies of the Bible. I have studied Bibles. I have referenced Bibles. I, I have an interleaf Bible. I, I have a chronological Bible. I love the Bible. And the book that you're holding in your lap this morning is the greatest book and it is the most unique book that has ever been written in the history of mankind. When you think that that book was written over a period of 1,500 years, 40 authors, three languages spread out over three continents, 
and that it contains 1,189 verses and 31 or, or chapters and 31,102 verses and 788,258 words. And among its authors were shepherds and kings and farmers and fishermen and priests and prophets. And, and, and the, yet for the diversity of the time and the space and the penman, there is a remarkable unity to the Bible. How is it possible that Moses and Daniel and David and Matthew and Paul, who never met each other and lived hundreds and thousands of years apart, could all contribute to one book and there be no disagreement among them? The reason why is because it's not 40 authors, it's one author, it's author divine, the Holy Ghost. It is the most read, the most copied, the most translated book that has ever been written. Since John penned the last book of the Bible, it has been translated as a whole in the 322 languages and parts of it have been translated into 2,883 languages. It is the world's, world's all-time bestseller, but you'll never find it on any bestseller list. And what is amazing about the popularity of the Bible is that nobody is forced to own one. Yet there are millions of Christians around the world that are forbidden to own one. In 1964, Communist China published a book of Mao Zedong's quotes. And that book sold millions of copies in the first year that it was published. But the reason why is because every family in China was required to own a copy. The penalty for owning, for not owning one of those books was severe. So every home bought one under the threat of great harm. At the same time, the penalty for owning a Bible was even worse. One book was banned and one book was required, but somehow the banned book outsold the required book. It has never been easy for much of the world to own a Bible. In the earliest years of church history, it was forbidden to translate the Bible into any common language except Latin because only the clergy could understand the Bible. The first man to ever translate this book into English was a man named John Wycliffe. The Catholic Church thanked him by digging up his bones and burning them. The first man to ever print a part of this book in English was a man named William Tyndale. And again, the Catholic Church showed their appreciation by burning him at the stake. But in spite of the bans and the persecution, the Bible still enjoys the greatest popularity of any book ever written in any language. You say, preacher, what's so special about this book? I will tell you that it is a sacred book. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, and he said that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. The word holy means to be set apart. It means to be sanctified for a special purpose. Holy things are sacred things. And I want you to know that the Bible, it's not just another book. It is a heavenly volume. It is a sacred library. It is a holy book. Did you know that in writing and grammar, the word Bible should always be capitalized when it's referring to this book. Now it's if general, if it's like the gardener's Bible, 
you wouldn't capitalize that. But if it is referring to this, then you always capitalize this. Did you know that we have been accused of worshiping the Bible? I don't believe that we do, but I do believe that you ought to handle it with reverence and with care and with respect. I, I, I hate to see somebody take their Bible and shove it up into the windshield of the car and the sun curl the pages and tear the cover. I, I personally don't ever like to have any book or anything that's laid on top of my Bible. I know that it's just paper and ink and that the paper and ink is not sacred, but it ought to be handled with care and respect and out of reverence because it contains the very words of God. It's a sacred book. It's not only a sacred book, but I would say that it is a special book that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. The holy scriptures. That's an unusual word. It's a distinctive title, which by the way, there is a distinctive look to the Bible. You can be sitting in a restaurant and across the way there'll be somebody there and they've got their Bible or the hotel lobby. Look across the room and it's very clear that he's got a Bible in front of him. We buy Bibles with special leather covers because we like the feel or a Bible with wide margins so we can write in it. You don't do that with any other book. In fact, you don't carry the Bible like you carry any, you don't carry any other book like this, but you carry this book up close to your heart. It's a special book, but I say that it is a salvation book that from a child thou hast learned the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. The Bible was written for a specific purpose. It is that for people like you and I might read the message and be saved and go to heaven when we die. It is the Bible that tells us that we're all sinners. It is the Bible that tells us that the debt of sin must be paid. It is the Bible that tells me that Jesus died on the cross and paid for my sins. It is the Bible that tells us that if you'll trust in Christ and repent of your sins, sins that you can be saved. It's a salvation book. Did you know that in this book there are 3,237 people but the Bible is not about any of them. Of all of the people in this book, there is one man that is the focus of every page. It is Jesus Christ. And you and I should be glad about that because you wouldn't know Jesus Christ if it were not for the Bible. It is the Bible that introduces us to the Son of God who became the Son of Man, the babe in the manger who was the Lord of glory, the sovereign who became our substitute. It's a sacred book. It's a special book. It's a salvation book. I wonder this morning if you love the Bible. The Bible was meant to be read and then read again and read again and then studied and memorized and meditated upon. It's not just to read a few chapters in the morning, but it's to read it until it reads you. God help you if you had time this morning to check Facebook but didn't have time to put your face in the book. God help you if you spend more time on Twitter than you do God's word. I wonder what is your relationship to the Bible? Did you know that there are some people that despise this book? 
I have sat in an airport terminal off to myself with the Bible open in my lap doing some study in between flights and I've watched people come by and snicker and sneer and give a little grin and, 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 and as if somebody could be so foolish as to read a Bible. They have burned it. They have banned it. They have belittled it. They believe it's a fairy tale. They believe it's a lie. They, would be, they think the world would be better if all Bibles were banished. They, they despise the book. Did you know that there are some who deny the Bible? They appreciate it for its place in history, but they don't believe it. They don't believe the miracles. They don't believe it's the Word of God. It's nothing special. It's full of mistakes and errors and contradictions. There are those who distort the Bible. As Peter said, they rest the scriptures according to their own destruction. And they claim to believe it, but they approach it with an air of superiority as if my original languages gives me the right to stand in judgment over the word of God that, that maybe I'm smarter than the translators. They, they invent doctrines that are not in the Bible. Now they twist verses around to fit their theology. But I wonder, do you love the Bible? I, I love the word of God. I I hope that you don't just pick it up for a trip to church on Sunday, never to pick it up until the next Sunday. I hope that you love your Bible. Here's why I love my Bible. I love my Bible because it is the incontestable Word of God. Peter said being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, catch this phrase, by the Word of God. It is not the words or the ideas of men, but it claims to be words spoken by God himself. That though it had human penmen, its author is the Holy Ghost. There's many descriptions for the Bible, but the one that the Bible uses for itself the most is the Word of God. There are literally thousands of verses that say, Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, for the Word of God is quick and powerful. But how is it, how is it that you and I sit here with a book that contains the very words of God? It wasn't inscribed on some golden tablets like they say the Book of Mormon was. It wasn't written in the sky or, or given by some cherubim. So, so how did we get this book? There's really three things, and I'm not getting deep into this all. But first of all, there is revelation that's from God to man, where God spoke and man heard. And then there is inspiration that's from man to paper. Man wrote down what God said. There is illumination from paper to heart where man receives the light of the word that God has spoken. And I want to be careful how I say this. There is an inseparable link between the Bible and Jesus. They're not synonymous, but they sure are similar. In fact, the Father gave the Son the same name as he gave the Bible. Revelation 19, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. They have the same name. Did you know that both Jesus and the Bible came from heaven? Both Jesus and the Bible will live forever. Both Jesus and the Bible are unchanging. Both Jesus and the light. Bible are light in the dark world. Both Jesus and the Bible are absolute truth. 
I love the Bible. And no matter how many times that you stand in the pulpit and preach, there should still be in the back of your conscience and awareness that I stand here not with my words, but I stand here with God's words. And if I am going to stand here and believe that that is God's word, then I must be so careful as to how I handle this. It matters not my opinion. It matters not my position. It matters not my ideas. All that matters today is what does God say? Well, one of the things that I really don't care for is when somebody repeats something I say and then paraphrases me. We had a lady in our church some years ago and, and she did a lot in our church and God bless her, but she had this habit of if there was something that she wanted done, then she would go and say, I talked to pastor and I'm sure pastor would say, well, no, you're not sure. If you're going to quote me, you quote me exactly what I said. So sometimes when we're driving, my wife and I, I don't text while I'm driving, but somebody, somebody, sometimes somebody texts my hand and I say, what they say? And if I need to give a reply, I'll tell her. All right, tell him this. Now, I don't need flowery words. I just need to get right. to the message. But she has to help me. Yeah. Huh? She, she got to make it kinder, you know. You, you, you should say thank you. She, no, so she got to add to it. I don't want you to add to it. I want you to text it exactly like I said. I want it to sound like me, not like you. Huh? I think that God gets blamed for saying a whole lot of things that he didn't say. When I stand with this book, I don't ever want to put words into God's mouth. I have no right to say that God told me unless I can show you a chapter and a verse. And all of my opinions and good ideas and all of my clever quips and self-created doctrines must bow in submission to the word of God. It is the incontestable word of God. But then can I say secondly, I love it because it's the incorruptible word of God. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible we don't have time to get into how we got our bible translations this is not bible and students can't mean but i believe that the bible that i have is the pure word of god i will just tell you that over millenniums that the bible has been translated and copied and transcribed and thousands and thousands of parts of the bible and ancient languages exist in libraries around the world and scholars have examined and they've cataloged all of those manuscripts they've determined that there are basically two lines two families, two texts. There is an Alexandrian text and there is an Antioch text and basically every Bible translation that exists comes from one of those two texts. I will just tell you that the Alexandrian text is corrupt and the Antioch text is a pure text. There's only one English translation. It comes from that pure text and it is a King James Bible. I believe in the preservation of the Bible as a book. It's still here. I believe in the preservation of the Bible in the text but I believe in the preservation of the Bible in a translation. And I know all of the questions that have been asked what in King James are homosexual and translators were Anglicans and do you have a 1611 or a 
1769, questions that have been answered a hundred times. But I believe, I believe, don't have time to argue with you, but I believe that the Bible that is sitting in your lap is a book with no errors and no contradictions and no mistakes and no, no fallacies. Your Bible is either completely true or it is completely unreliable. And if there's one mistake in your Bible, then there might be two. And if there's two mistakes in your Bible, then how do you don't know that there's three? And if there's three, you might as well throw it out. But the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Thank God for my Bible. We use two words to talk about the perfection of the Bible. We use words like inerrant and infallible. Now the word inerrant says that it is given without error. Infallible says that everything in it is true. It is incapable of teaching untruth. It is written without error. And what is written is absolutely true. Inerrancy says that the writers of the scripture wrote every word exactly as inspired. Infallibility says that everything they wrote is absolutely true. It's like if I go to my secretary and I dictate a letter to her. And I say, I want you to write this thank you letter to Brother Gravely for this meeting, and I want you to write this. If she writes down every word that I say, it's inerrant. However, I might say something that she writes down that's not true. It is not infallible. But the Bible is inerrant, and it is infallible. It is absolute truth recorded without error. Freshman Greek, freshman Greek year. First day of class, I was nervous. If they're going to correct the Bible, this is where it's going to be. Teacher got up. He said, I want you guys to know. He said, we're not learning Greek to correct the Bible. We're learning Greek to clarify the Bible. And I thought, okay. But then I thought, I didn't know it needed clarified. I thought that I already understood it. Please don't tell me that I got to be bilingual to understand the Bible. I know that there's value in word studies and how words are translated. I understand that. But I'm telling you, if you don't know alpha from beta, if you don't know gamma from omega, you can understand your Bible just fine. Dr. Oled is not here yet. I suppose he's coming in. But if I could borrow the words of Dr. R.B. Oled, I heard the old time preacher speak without one reference to the Greek. This precious book within my hand is God's word on, on which I stand. And then the scholars came along and said that the preacher had it wrong. Conflations here and recisions there and scribal errors everywhere. A book essentially correct, but not in every last respect. A fairly certain word, they say, to light our path and guide our way. But in despair, I bowed my head. We have no word of God, I said. If some of the old book is wrong, then pray tell what else does not belong. Will still more manuscripts be found to make us go another round, correcting, changing, taking out, creating questions, fear and doubt. Much more, much, 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 much more discoveries come to light before we finally get it right. Will precious doctrines fade away because of what the scholars say? How many errors must we perish because of what the scholars urge? How many versions must we make? How many changes can we take? And how will we ever know that we're through? That we finally possess a scripture that is true. If man must find God's word, my friend, then when will the changes ever end? 
So to the book again, I fled to find out what my father said. Forever settled, never fade. This is the promise that God the Spirit made a thousand generations hence. That seems to be a pretty strong defense, a perfect book that it must be that man can't improve on what God gave to me. We've got a book that's completely true, instructing us in all that we do, preserved by God, not found by men, inscribed by God the Spirit's pen. If God or the scholars you must choose then be sure that the experts always lose don't give them a second look just keep believing this old black boy I've got to hurry. I've got to hurry. It's the incontestable word of God. It is the incorruptible word of God. But Peter says it's the indestructible word of God. Being born again of corrupted, being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. Watch this. Which liveth and abideth forever. One of the testimonies to the Bible is its survival down through the centuries. We call it the preservation of the scriptures. You can be thankful for that. And by the way, the scholars want to go to great lengths to argue for inspiration, but then deny preservation. Well, if there is no preservation, then inspiration really don't matter. If the only things that are inspired are the original manuscripts, which you don't have, then it's not helping us. Inspiration says that God gave his word to man. Preservation says he has kept his word from man. And while you can argue against preservation using logic, I would rather argue for it using scripture. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The grass withereth and the flower falleth away but the word of our God shall stand forever. Heaven and earth shall pass away but my word shall not pass away. You know what that says by the way? It says that preservation is not up to you. Preservation is up to the Bible. God is the one who promised that he preserve his word and I just have enough faith to believe that God has done that. I've got to hurry. I've got to hurry. The first book of the Bible the first book of the Bible was written over 3,500 years ago last book penned about 1500 years later and while multitudes of ancient Bibles have disappeared into the dust bins of history not one of the books of this book has been lost Satan has launched his most vicious attacks against this book and here it stands around 175 BC there was a man in Syria that took over Syria his name was Antiochus Epiphanes and Antiochus Epiphanes hated the Jews he came into Jerusalem, sold, sold thousands of Jews into slave, slavery. He came in, what they called the abomination, desolation, sacrificed a pig on the altar, forcing Jews to worship pagan idols. He hated them. And in his quest to destroy the Jewish race, Antiochus Epiphanes passed a decree that all Jewish scriptures must be destroyed. History would tell you that within three years of making that decree, Antiochus Epiphanes was dead. But here it still is. There was an infidel in France. His name was Voltaire. He was a tool of Satan to mock Christianity. Voltaire would take a Bible, tie it to the tail of a donkey, drag it through the streets of the city, end up in the city dump, and burn it with blasphemy. And Voltaire boasted that within a hundred years of my death, the Bible would no longer exist. Actually, what happened is the Geneva Bible Society bought his house to store Bibles in. Voltaire's been dead for 200 years. You've probably never read his writings, but here's the book. While Voltaire was making his boast in France, the infidel Thomas Paine was making a name for himself over here in the States. Thomas Paine wrote The Age of Reason, which is really the atheist Bible. Nothing more than an attack against the Bible. 
Thomas Paine said that in five years there will not be a Bible in America. He said, I've gone through all of its trees with an axe and I've cut it all down. Thomas Paine died a lonely, bitter, broken man. But here it is. The Bible has the distinct honor of being the first book written and the first book printed on a printing press. It will be the last book standing when all those have been destroyed. The Bible has been the most intensely loved book in all of the world. It has been the most bitterly hated. It has received more veneration and adoration than any other book. It has been the object of more persecution and opposition. And just as those three Hebrew boys walked through the furnace of fire and came out without the stench of fire on them, the Bible has emerged from the furnace of satanic opposition without the smell of fire upon it. Last eve, I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chimes. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating through years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all those hammers so? Just one, said he. Then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. So I thought the anvil of God's word. For ages, skeptics' blows have beat upon. Yet, though the noise of falling blows are heard, the anvil is unharmed and the hammers are gone. It is the indestructible word of God. I've got to hurry. I'm sorry for going too long. I'll tell you why I love my Bible. It's the indispensable word of God. Verse 25. For the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. It's not just a book. It's the book that gave me the gospel. This is the book that told me about a Savior who died for my sins, was buried, and rose from the grave. There are others who can preach the gospel better than me. But there are none that can preach a better gospel than me. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. What the world thinks is foolish is infused with the power of God that sees sinners converted. What is the result of it is in verse 23. I've got to hurry. Being born again. If you have been born only once, you'll die twice. The first death is physical. The second is eternal. But if you've ever been born twice, you'll only die once. To live forever in the presence of God. How does a man get born again? How did you get born again? So somebody took the book in a bedroom or a living room or an altar or Sunday school class, wherever it was. He said, let me introduce you to Jesus. There's life in this book. A seed has the germ of life in it and the seed produces life. And when the seed of God's word gets in you and the spirit of God breathes on it, life comes forth. I would not be who I am. I would not be where I am for, for that book. I tell you a true story. True story. I'm done. Winston Churchill, greatest prime minister of England, a giant of a man. I'm taking my wife to London, England in May, and I, I'm looking forward to it. Winston Churchill was brought up in a very wealthy, aristocratic home. And one day, when Winston Churchill was just a little lad, he he was out playing on their family estate and he, he fell into a pond and he didn't know how to swim. He was just four or five years old and he got out over his head and he was drowning. 
And on that family estate, there was a gardener that was employed by the family. He was working in one of the gardens somewhere in the yard, and he heard that little boy cried out for help. And so that gardener dropped his tools. He ran out. He dove in. He swam out that pond, and he grabbed hold of that little boy, and he brought him back to safety, and he saved Winston Churchill's life as a little boy. The parents were overjoyed. And so the parents came to him, any reward, anything that you want, anything. And the gardener said, no, no, I... I don't need anything. I, I mean, I'm just glad I was there, and they insisted. And so finally, the gardener said, he said, well, I've got a little boy. And he said, it would be our dream for our boy to be able to go to college one day, but we'd never be able to afford that. So he said, it's done. We'll pay for his college. And when that gardener's boy grew up, old enough to go to college, Winston Churchill's parents paid for him to go off to college, became, became a doctor, became a medical doctor. Years later, Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of England. And Winston Churchill got deathly ill. Being the Prime Minister, they're going to call for the best doctor in the land. The best doctor in that land in that day was a man named Alexander Fleming. He was the founder, the man who discovered penicillin. He was the most renowned doctor in, in England. And they called for Alexander Fleming to come. He came where Prime Minister was, his house. And he nursed him back to hell. He saved his life. And you may already know that Alexander Fleming, that doctor, was the son of that gardener that they paid to go to college. And later on, Winston Churchill would say, rarely does a man owe his life to the same man twice, but I owe my life to that gardener for coming into that dirty water and rescuing me, but then for sending his son. Oh, my life to him twice. He's the one that created me. But he sent his son into the murky waters of humanity to save me from a horrible disease. You know how I know that? Because I got a Bible. I found it all right there. I love my Bible. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. May it be precious to us. May we cherish it as a treasure, priceless. May we govern our life by it. When I think about my family, and how I love my wife, and the heritage that I have, the calling of God on my life, the privilege of pastoring, the anticipation, it's all because of that book. Thank you for my Bible.